0: The Lord be with you. you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to have gone through uh, the Old Testament in uh, hitting hitting the peaks, many of the peaks, Lord. And now we turn our attention uh, to the New Testament. And so, Father, um, we're just so grateful for your word. We're so grateful that you, from the very beginning, have been a God who has desired to reveal yourself to us. And that You have been a God who speaks, a God who listens, a God who is relational. And so, Father, we stand in a long, long, long heritage of those to whom You have bound uh, by Your covenant. And so, Father, we are so grateful that our covenant fulfillment, uh, Jesus Christ, came and uh, lived and died and was resurrected and ascended. we come to You in His name, gathered as Your people. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen. There it is, my coffee. I don't know how to teach without coffee in my hand. So we're beginning the New Testament. We have, um, we have gone through 50 lessons, through the E100, essential 100 passages. Uh, the, so 50 Old Testament passages. And we're heading into the New Testament. 50 New Testament. I expect it will take us probably through the summer. Um, because I always plan out this week we'll do two or three of these lessons and I, I, I'll, then I end up going, uh, we're just going to do one of them. So today we're going to do John chapter 1 and then next week we'll do uh, Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2. So it takes me a long time to get through these because there's so much, uh, so much things. Uh, so much, so, it's so rich. It's so, uh, there's, there's so much material. But, you know, as we begin the New Testament, it is very, very important for us to understand uh, that we are simply continuing the same story. We're simply continuing the same story. It's not that the Old Testament is one story and the New Testament is, a, is another story. Uh, you know, one of the things I hear so often, and you've probably uh, heard it said, you may have said it yourself, the Old Testament God is a God of anger, and the New Testament God is a God of love. Right, and I... What we want to to have been seeing, and in fact, one of the reasons we're going through this essential one hundred passage is to see that there is a uh, that we are worshiping the same God uh, that we always have worshipped. We're not taking when you say that there's a, the Old Testament God is a God of anger and the New Testament God is a God of love. We're not it, that is not really taking into account the biblical witness, um, but rather isolating a few uh, stories and then overlaying those stories with 20th century values. But we actually want to let those stories, which are ancient, speak on their own terms as best we can. And we're always going to have a 20th 21st century uh, filter, um, but we are um, we want to let them speak from their own context. But what I hope you have seen, if you've been with us throughout, that God is a God who loves His people, who is magnificent, both in beauty and in power, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the repeated refrain, a repeated refrain, throughout uh, Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. That He is perfectly just. And He is and always has been stridently opposed to sin as an expression of His love. That's what we have to hold on to when we see God opposed to sin, angry about sin, judging sin, we have to see that as an expression of His love. Why is that? Because he, number one, He is God and He is, He. is His greatest allegiance because He is God is to Himself as ours ought to be as well. You and I aren't qualified to have our greatest allegiance to ourself, although we do. That's part of the problem that we're going to address. But our Calling is to reflect His character. And sin destroys His creation. And so God is opposed to sin, not because He is some sort of control freak, but because He understands that opposition to His character is opposition to His goodness and His will. And no doubt uh, that this opposition to sin is an affront to the notion uh, that we are the singular and supreme authority over what is good and bad and right and wrong for ourselves. Like that is that is sort of a staple uh, given in our culture. I am my own supreme authority. You know, I mean, just think about how we just <laughs> it seems like so many conversations. I in about God, somebody brings up free will. Well, why do we want to bring up free will? Because we we want to have some semblance of control. And I'm not saying we don't have free will because that's a gift. But if it's, if it is free will as a gift, then it is given to us by. Uh, God for His own glory. So uh, what I want to do is just to begin our class today, as we're going to talk about John 1, but I really want to just review the old, some of the Old Testament stories that we've hit so that we can see that the God that, that is breaking into this world is in fact the same God that there has always been. So that when you hear someone say, you know, I just really prefer the New Testament God, as a God of love. That we're talking about the same God who has always been. He's always been a God of love, and he still is a God of, of justice and wrath against sin. Thanks be to God that justice and wrath has been poured out on Himself, on the cross. So we saw in Genesis one and two that God is the God of all creation. Right? He was before before there was anything. He was. And He created all that, he, he, all that is out of His uh, own imagination for His own glory by His spoken word. Let there be, and there was. Therefore, because God is the one who created all that you have ever known, He is the definition by Himself of what is good, and right, and holy, and just, and loving. God is the definition. He is the standard of those things. He does not meet another standard that is outside of himself. He's the standard of what is love, what is good, what is right. And anything that is opposed to his nature is, by definition, bad or wrong or unjust or unholy or unloving. He's the standard because he's the one who created. Right? We saw that in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 3, though, we saw the emergence of the problem that the entire rest of the Bible addresses. And the entire rest of the Bible seeks to understand. The word that the Bible uses is sin. Particularly the human tendency to prioritize ourselves and our preferences over the self and the preference of God. We want to be in His spot. That's really when we look at the the testimony of Genesis 3 and and Adam and Eve and Eve's sin and uh, Adam's complicity in her sin um, to his sin, their sin, that they put themselves in preference over God. God said, don't, gave him one rule, and they said, you know what, we're going to just give it a shot. (laughs) Um, Now, whether you believe there's an actual Adam and Eve or not, is really irrelevant to the testimony of that story. Now, I do. But I also um, understand that the testimony of the Bible is that hum- from the very beginning, the human problem has been that we want to put our place in God's spot, particularly on the throne of our own hearts. And that was, it wasn't, it, there's nothing wrong with eating the apple or whatever kind of fruit it was. It was that you said, I want to have my way instead of. God's way. The next eight chapters of Genesis demonstrate the problem that sin creates. This, we saw Cain and Abel, and Cain's murder of Abel. We saw Noah and the ark and the, uh, God's judgment against sin uh, because everyone was evil uh, always in their own hearts, all, uh, or however Genesis 6 uh outlines that. Was the Tower of uh, Babel, Babel. We had an argument about what it, was, it, Babel or Babel, or tomato, or tomato. But then uh then in Genesis 12, so we had that's that's the whole universal problem. Then in Genesis 12, we zero in on one man named Abram. And God begins to say, Alright, this is how I'm gonna start solving this problem. And he has his plan. See, Jesus has never plan B. G- You'll read sometimes, oh, you know, God saw that we couldn't do, and so He decided He would come Himself. Jesus is always on the horizon, okay? But He began it, rather than just showing up, He began it by demonstrating to His people that if they were going, He was going to lay down His own character for them in the form of the law, then they were going to rebel against that in, in every case. So God begins the solution that He's going to send with uh, calling Abraham and his barren wife, Sarai. Saying, your descendants are going to outnumber the sand of the seashore. And throughout your line, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So see, God is always wanting good for His people. Through, through your line, all nations are going to be blessed. And then in Genesis 15, the establishment of the covenant. Now, I'm not going to go this slow through the whole Old Testament, but um, we see the establishment of the covenant. God's binding Himself to His people. Remember, the, the, um, Abram cuts the animals in half, and the smoking fire pot goes through, but Abram never walks through, uh, saying that, that um, norm, where normally the, uh, the, power, the power player in a covenant would, say, uh, would send the other person through that cut covenant and say, uh, if you fail in your uh, responsibility then this, these cut animals this is what's going to happen to you but God goes through instead saying if you fail and you will this is what's going to happen to me there's this covenant; God's binding himself though they will be unfaithful he will be faithful and we see the miraculous conception of Isaac uh, the saga of Jacob and Esau Jacob's twelve sons God is watching over Joseph as he's sold into slavery in Egypt good coming from evil Remember, Joseph says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so we see a great lesson in our own life. You know, good things can happen from from bad things. It's never the end of the story. But it's also a foreshadow of the cross that what humanity, uh, that crucified Christ intended for evil, God intended for good. That's why we call it Good Friday, right? It is actually the ultimate redemption uh, for for our own sins, our own eternal lives. We see Moses at the command of God, leading the people out of slavery in Egypt, uh, defeating Pharaoh. We have a ma- ma- magnificent, majestic passage of the Passover. Now, we have God's wrath poured out against sin in the, twel- in the ten plagues, and particularly that tenth. But the Passover is where, if you remember, the people would um, take the lamb and-, and kill it, and take the blood, and put the blood over the doorposts, and then they would eat it right before they would be taken out of Egypt. And God would send His Spirit and He said, When I see the blood of the Lamb, I will pass over you. And we can get pretty quickly to the cross from there, right? When I see the blood of the Lamb, I'm going to pass over you from judgment. So He withheld His judgment wherever He saw the blood. So we see, again, that God's establishing His patterns. He's the same God then and the same God now. We see Him crossing the Red Sea by the power of God and the will of God, um, uh, delivering His people from an impossible situation. Walking through the water to that which is promised to God foreshadows baptism. Our own covenant, um, sign, sacrament. Through the waters of baptism, uh, we are made... Uh, a free people. In fact, next week, in the 8 o'clock service, we'll have a baptism. Probably the first baptism that anybody can remember in the 8 o'clock service. Nora Bishop and her daddy, Ben, will be uh, baptized. So, um, so we see God uh, leading His people uh, through an impossible situation to freedom. Same God. Uh, leading His people with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The giving of the law on Mount Sinai to say both this is who I am as your God as a God who reveals my character to you and this is the life that I have designed you for and designed for you right so God shows himself here as always to be for his people and stridently against sin which um, sin which contradicts his character and, and destroys his people God is against sin because it is for our good that He is against sin. Also in the law, we have the establishment of the sacrificial system. It's very important. We've always recognized that sin deserves death. And therefore, to live, the people need a vicarious or substitute sacrifice. Right? Now, the author of Hebrews tells us the blood of uh, goats and bulls can't ever wash away human sin ultimately what we need was a human sacrifice, which sounds pretty barbaric to us, but in fact our whole faith is staked on that. Go through, continuing the giving of Joshua, is not Moses and the, giving of the, law, the giver of the law that takes the people into the promised land, but Joshua, what is Jesus' name? Jesus' name is Joshua. That's, they're the same name. And it is Joshua who leads his people across the River Jordan and into the promised land. I feel like, is it just me? I feel like the, the uh, pillar of fire it must be in this room. Is, is it hot to anybody else or is it just me? Okay. I'm going to uh, appoint Gary Marks. Oh, no, I'm going to appoint my junior warden right back here and say, will you please uh, uh, give us a little AC? Maybe it's just my coffee. Maybe it's just my teaching. I don't know. So. Didn't notice until I said it. Thanks a lot. Then we see King David. I mean, there's so many more things that I'm missing, but... Remember, David, little David, stands before Goliath. The one man of God standing before the enemy of God on behalf of God's people. Foreshadowing there, Christ standing before our great enemy, Satan, before our great enemy, sin, uh, on behalf of the people. We see also, of course, in David, the establishment of the monarchy. And the Davidic covenant, there will always be some for eternity. There will always be someone on your line uh, of your line on the throne of, of Israel, right? So David was both a recipient of unreasonable and extravagant grace because he was a champion sinner, but also David as a means by which God would fulfill His gracious promises to His people. And then we see obviously there's a lot more to the story, but we see the prophets, God raising up his spoken his chosen mouthpieces, calling his people back to God, calling his people to repent of their ways, to repent of the life that dishonors God and places themselves in God's position. So that's what we're seeing in the prophets and there's this tension throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament's not trying to make a case that there is a God. The Old Testament is not trying to establish creation versus evolution. That's not not the burden of the Old Testament. The burden of the Old Testament is how can a holy and righteous God have anything to do with an, an unholy people? That's the question. Or you might say it like this, who will be the Lord of the human heart? Who will be the Lord of the human? That's the discipleship question, isn't it? Who will be the Lord of my heart? Will it be me, or will it be God? That is a daily, moment-by-moment question that you and I ask as disciples of Jesus. Who will be the Lord of the human heart? It's a corporate question. It's also an individual question. It's a question for all of God's people, and it's a question for every one of God's people. Who will be the Lord? So what is firmly established in the Old Testament is that there is a gap between humanity and the God Who created, who loves, and who owns us all. Right? There's a gap. And equally firm is the reality that this gap, that this is a gap that human effort cannot fix, cannot cross. That nothing we do will bridge ourselves to holiness. You look at your last hour (laughs) and think, "Ah, I've probably already blown it. Or at least your last 24 hours, right? I've probably blown that. We kind of have this fantasy that I'm just trying to get better and better so that on that day, I will be good enough to bridge the gap. But God's looking at the whole life. We've already been taking the test. And I don't know about you, but I'm already in an So, I need someone else's report card. That's what grace is. God puts your name on Jesus' report card. So, what we see is that education is not the problem. Right? And the people have, they've, they've gotten the law, they've gotten the prophets, they've heard it. Education is not the issue. No amount of prophetic appeal can wipe away a lifetime of rebellion. No amount of prophetic appeal can sufficiently turn the hearts of the people away from their own desire, which was established in the garden to assume God's authority over their own life. And Throughout the Old Testament, and particularly in the prophets, what we hear is that God is saying, I'm going to have to be the one who solves the problem. The, the entire Old Testament history is, is, is a judicial case to say, to make the case to us that we can't solve this problem. As if your, the testimony of your life and my life wasn't enough, we have the whole 2,000 years of Old Testament history to say, look, it can't be done. Human effort is not going to bridge the gap to God. So we hear the prophets. God is going to bridge the gap. We all like sheep have gone astray, each to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, the suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. Behold, a day is coming when I will establish a new covenant, and I will write the law on your hearts. In other words, it will be put inside of you, rather than something you are expected to adhere to. And then we heard last week in, in Malachi, I will send Elijah to come before me and prepare the way. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers. And then what? Nothing. Silence. For 400 years. I mean, there's life, there's religious activity, there's political turmoil, but in the midst of that 400 years... Prophetic silence, like from here back to King Henry the Eighth. I mean, there's everything we have in America has been established since. Then. That's a long time. There's a lot of life that happens in 400 years, maybe not king, maybe quintalism. But so in that, you can imagine at the point where God. Breaks in where Jesus is born. Questions are unanswered. Promises are unfulfilled. The gap remains unbridged, and the people have lost hope. I mean, they had this idea that there is that God is. I mean, that God is there, but has He abandoned them? They're under Roman rule. They've just seen the. They've 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 just not seen God's hand. They've not seen the promises fulfilled like they expected. And it's sort of like at the end of Act 1, and the curtain goes down, and all through the intermission, the theater just stays dark. But you know, their eyes adjust to the darkness, and they've got to go to the bathroom and get up and go get something to eat. So they just start milling around, but it's still dark. And then, when they've kind of forgotten that there's a, even a play going on, the timpani drum starts a low roll, and out of the darkness, a light begins to appear. It's been an unbearable length of time, and the audience has given up hope, but it is into that tense, silent darkness that a light begins to shine. The New Testament begins, in order to continue the story, And to answer the question that began in the garden, how can unholy people have a relationship with a holy God? Now I want to say before we read uh, John 1, that the Gospel of John is different, you probably know this, different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story from a similar perspective, and so they are called the synoptics, which means one eye. They see, see, see things the same way. The synoptic Gospels. But actually, as we go through the E100, we're not going to see John again after today until after Easter. So I wanted to just say, the synoptics have a sort of bottom-up approach. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are making their case for the Messiahship of Jesus. And we really see that consummated. He really is the Son of God. He really is the Messiah in the death and resurrection. But John is a top-down Gospel. From the very beginning, we see that he is cosmically the Son of God. And in fact, he is what we don't mean he is God Jr., we mean he is co equal uh, with God. That he has a different role in the Father, but he is and always has been and always will be God. So the Gospel of John is not contradictory, it's just a different perspective. Than the others. In John, I had a New Testament professor in college, my undergrad, that said, um, I remember him saying that in John, Jesus hardly hits the ground. And it's kind, of the, it's kind of the truth. If you read John, he really kind of hardly hits the ground. I remember going through John with a group of men in Birmingham and seeing how, uh, for the first time really, how uh, intent John is to show the unity between Jesus and the Father. Jesus is God. He has come to be with us. Whereas in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that God, um, we the case is made from almost, like I said, from a human perspective. The gospels are biography, but they're not like modern biography. They're not concerned with psychological development and chronological um, precision. They are um, an ancient biography, tended to focus on uh, the significant events and the teaching around the life of the subject. And a lot of times, to make the case, they would lump those things together, not in a way that was chronological, but just by theme, okay? And that's really what the Gospels do. So, that's how we want to read the Gospels. That they are not chronology, they're not biography as we understand them, they're ancient biography. Let me open up John 1, and um, and remember this is this is the light dawning. And John does a magnificent thing in this top down approach. He begins before the beginning. Before the beginning of time. He says in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. So we see we have we have in the beginning. You now what was what was what are the first words of scripture? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? In the beginning, this is very intentional on John's part. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. So he's saying that Jesus is the agent of creation. Without him. Was not anything made that was made. In him was life. So Jesus is the Word of God, the expression of God's character and nature, and he is the one through whom all of life gets its life. Right? He is this spark. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness. You can hear the timpani playing in the background as John is is writing this. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. But He was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. So we have the beginning, and then we have creation, and we have a new beginning. There's a man named John. And then we have new creation. Beginning, creation, new beginning, new creation. The true light, but born of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." Now, I could keep going and there's so very, very much to say uh, about this. But you can see how God, uh, John is starting from the, before the dawn of time and saying that God, Jesus is and always has been with us, and he has come uh, to solve the problem. He is the, prophetic, the fulfillment of the prophetic question. He was the light shining into the darkness. Now, the word, you may know this, that the word in Greek uh, for word is, anybody know? Logo. Logos. Right? Logos. And in the Greek mind, let me try to say this all right. In the Greek mind, the, the logos or the logos was the, it's the that's the word from which we get logic. It is the it is the thing that held the universe together. It is the reason that uh, the sky was blue, the reason that we all stay stuck to the ground rather than floating off. Uh, it was the reason that the sun went down on one side of the earth and came up on another side of the earth and it was cold some months and hot some months in a pretty repeatable pattern. That's the Logos. It is the thing that holds the world together. The supreme designer pattern of the world. I'm sure there's a more articulate way to say that. But the Logos in Hebrew, the word, as I remember it, is. Dabar, but it's the same word, and it had also had a philosophical meaning. And that is that um, that is not what holds the world together, but what holds the individual together. It is the expression of an individual. It is what makes you you. It's what makes you have brown eyes or green eyes, and blonde hair or white hair or no hair. Uh, what makes you. Uh, either funny or serious or just whatever it is. It makes you you. The logos in the Hebrew mind was the definitive expression of who you are. So do you see what John has done here, writing to both Greeks and Hebrews, that with one word, word, logos, he has brought together Saying These two philosophies saying that the definitive expression of who God is, is the one who holds the whole world together. That that's His personality. That we all belong to Him, and that is the definitive expression of His personality. I just think that's remarkable, what John has done. Just in this one word. That we'll totally miss because we just think that He's the Word. We think, and we rightly understand, the Word is just the, the spoken word. It's the, it's the expression. <coughs> so if I'm speaking a lot of words to you, and that that is that, um, that I'm telling, giving you meaning. I'm telling you what, what is in here. And so we see that God, uh, Jesus is the, the meaning of God in some sense. And that's not wrong. But it's so much fuller. That the world is held together by the definitive expression of the personality of God. And He has broken in so that we might have the right to become children of God. Now, if you're paying attention, that's really offensive to our current culture, because we always say we're all children of God. But what this has to say, and i just hold it up before you, and if you're mad about it, you can argue with it. Don't. Or you can email me at Trent Moore at Our Savior. Yeah, it's my favorite joke. It's the one that keeps on giving. Um, but it says that, that, um, that we aren't children of God. doesn't mean God doesn't love us. But John is saying that this is, this is what the prophets were saying. We're, if we're not with God, we are outside of God. There's not, he's not saying there's one light bulb and many paths up the mountain. He's saying that there is one way, truth, and life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. And so, to all who believe in Him, whoever believes in His name, He gives the right to become children of God. That's that's the only ticket, is belief. The world has rejected Him. We can look at the newspapers and understand that. Day in and day out. I'm not referring to any particular story here, although there may be some today. But... What I'm saying is that you know by looking at the news, and you know by looking at your own life, that humanity, what John is saying is, is right, that humanity has rejected God, but God by his graciousness has given us the right to be his children. It does not mean his little kids, it means his heirs. That we're grafted into his family. The word became flesh. The word put skin on. The word became human and dwelt among us. You know, you've probably heard people say that word is that in Greek is tabernacled. He pitched a tent. A tabernacle is a temporary dwelling. He pitched a tent. The word became flesh and came to dwell among us for a short period of time. It was never intended to be permanent. But the tabernacle, as you know, was the place of worship. It was the place where God dwelled. So, John is saying two things. He's saying it was temporary, but it's also that He is the temple. He's the tabernacle. He's the the dwelling place of God uh, for us. We have seen Him. We have seen His glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. So the law in the Old Testament says, this is the problem. This is what you were to do, and we have not done it. That's the law. The law condemns. In Christ, He is full of grace and truth. Grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. So, that's a lot. Old Testament survey, New Testament beginning, the light dawning. Let me add, open it up. We have a couple minutes, though. I'm asking, what um, what what's your what's going on in your heart? What are you what are you thinking? What's your what are your, what questions come up for you? Yeah, Josh. When you talk about the word. Mm-hmm. the same... I would always taken that to mean, like, the, the entirety of Scripture. You know, we often refer to Scripture as the Word. Mm-hmm. And the Word became flesh, and kind of the whole body of Scripture was in Jesus. Yeah. But I like your story better. Like <laughs> <laughs> so, so what, if you couldn't hear Josh, he said he always understood that the um, that Scripture was in the beginning. And Scripture became flesh in Jesus. And that's not wrong. I mean, that's the express Scripture is the expression of God's will and intent. It was, yeah, in a so sense, written... That's right. But, but ultimately the word is, is Jesus, right? The word, even the scripture reflects uh, the ultimate expression of, of God's character, which is seen in the face of Christ. But yeah, good. Yeah? Going back to what you said about the children of God, we're not all children of God unless we believe. How does that work in that we're all born, we're all God has given, given us this, this life? How does that work? in say it again. I, as as I'm the, sure I understand. In other words, God, we're all uh, given birth. Yeah, we're all given birth we were mm-hmm. by, from God. Uh-huh. But now we're not children of God until we believe. Is that correct? Well, in this, I mean, this is a theological sense, right? This is this is um, if we are running away from God, <laughs> or declaring I am God unto myself, uh, or I'm going to worship God in a way of my own making rather than of God's gift, then we're saying we're outside the family. That's what, that's what John is saying. That's The light has shined in the darkness, uh, but the darkness is not... Uh, no, I'm, he was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Just what you're saying. Yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own. To His own people. And they did not receive Him. That's, that's what he's saying. We're outside of that. But, anytime the New Testament... Really any, but especially the New Testament says the word but. You want to pay attention, right? But, to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. We are offering ourselves to that, uh, to that relationship. That's what I mean by it. It doesn't mean God doesn't love everyone. I want to be very clear about that. But we are saying, until we come to Him in faith, we're saying that we aren't in that family relationship. That's what we're saying. We're not co-heirs with Christ. That make sense? Okay? What else? See, that, I want, let me just say about that, I don't mean that as condemnation. They're not one of us. I don't mean that at all. That's not the emphasis that I want to put on that. What I want to say is, isn't it amazing what God has given us? That's the, that's the thing we want to share with those who have not yet heard it. We don't know. Somebody, we don't know what somebody's going to do with Christ. I always tell the story of my mentor Frank Limehouse's father who came to Christ at 90 years old. People, many people died wanting him to come to Christ and he had not yet come to Christ. They, they probably died thinking that story was over. But of course it wasn't over because he came to Christ at 90 years old. And he said, gosh, what have I been waiting on all my life? You know? So it's the doctrine of assurance and of comfort and of blessing. Not a, not, shouldn't be, we shouldn't emphasize it as a point of condemnation. It's not us against them because we never lose our need for grace. Right? We always need daily. We need God's saving grace. Thank you, Father. Ten, eleven. Time to go to church. <laughs> Love you, mean it. God bless you. And we will next week. We'll be in Luke chapter two, uh, one and two. Luke one and two next week.